Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday afternoon. Hope you all had a great weekend. I had a good weekend. Nice, relaxing weekend. It's been kind of hot here, but not too bad. Just bearable, if you want to say that. Welcome to Sunday, Sunday Reading Day. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour, or maybe a little more, depending where we end up in the book. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at CaliforniaHaunts.org or the radio show at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. But we are 45 strong up and down the state of California, and we're also in Oregon, Washington, Nevada. So if you happen to have, and Hawaii, so if you happen to have, have what you think is something paranormal going on in your house, feel free to contact us either here at the chat on the show, or you can contact us at CaliforniaHaunts.radio or CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com in the CaliforniaHaunts.org. Or even on Facebook, we're everywhere on Facebook. We're on Instagram as well, under Ghosty Gal. You can look me up, Ghosty Gal, on Instagram. And if you're watching from Facebook, please, and you like what you hear today, please feel free to, oh, thank you, to, to hit that follow button on Facebook. And if you're watching from uh, Twitch, please, uh, please feel free to hit that follow button. And, of course, if you're watching from YouTube, there is a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner with the uh, magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on. Please feel free to click on that, and we have more than 350 videos over there, different topics, because I like to do different topics. I just don't like to cover the same stuff, you know, the same same old paranormal stuff over and over, okay? In fact, to give you an idea, on Wednesday tonight, we're going to be talking about spousal abuse and things like that, so I like to cover stuff like that. I'm a journalist, photojournalist, and so it kind of takes me back to my roots of doing that. We could just be us here for a few minutes here, give people time to come in. Uh, we're going to be reading from the Lizzie Borden book. Uh, we did that, what was it, last Wednesday, because uh, our guest got the days confused of when he was supposed to be on, so I decided to read the book. So we are at, we are at uh, not chapter 15, but we're at day 15, or day 16, rather, reading this book. Very interesting. We're in the middle of, of Lizzie's main trial right now. She's got gone through all the preliminaries and all that stuff. So I hope you'll uh, hang in there for the next few minutes before I start reading. And, you know, like it says, I don't do I do not do the five-minute intro today, so go get your popcorn and snacks and get your stuff and uh, sit back, grab some coffee, or if it's too hot for coffee, grab something nice and cold, grab yourself a cool one out of the fridge, and uh, pop that pop that bad boy open and uh, sit back, and we'll read about Lizzie Borden's trial and see how it goes, you know, because I don't know, I'm kind of still on the fence here. Did she do it? Didn't she do it? I mean, if you if you look at the book and everything, it looks like she did it, right? It looks, it looks pretty much like she did it. But, I mean, no one's really going to know because who else was in the house but Lizzie and then Bridget, the maid, was outside working or upstairs working, you know? So she wasn't even around. So there was really no one other than Lizzie to be witness to whatever happened in that house. Maybe. Maybe not, right? So, uh, yeah. So it's interesting to read some of the stuff because sometimes it looks like Lizzie didn't do it. Sometimes it looks like Lizzie did do it. So let me get a drink of water here. Lean down here, except I don't do it on camera. Usually just drink water, but... I'm drinking water today. My friend took me out. My producer took me out for Chinese food today. So, you know, Chinese always makes you extra thirsty even after you eat it. You're, you're, you're drinking water for a while. So, yeah. So I've got to drink water. Okay. One of the announcements I want to make, too, is... Hello, Debbie. <laughs> One of the announcements I want to make, too, is that we're going to start doing some travel vlogs. And there might be travel vlogs on haunted places that might work, or just general travel vlogs. We're going to be doing that. Hopefully, there'll be of haunted places. That's what I'm working towards right now. So we'll be going sometimes on the Saturday or so, and might go live on Facebook, might not go live on Facebook. We'll see how that goes. But just to talk about that, you know, about a particular haunted building that I know of, and stuff, maybe stuff that the team has investigated before, so that, you know, brings some add some some viable stuff to it and just like over on tiktok right now i'm working on a part two because i did a tiktok about the haunted the, the haunted opera house in woodland so i'm going to be doing the part two to that that shows the evidence that the team got and stuff at that particular place so that's what i'm hoping to do with these travel vlogs is is hit up these places these commercial places that we've investigated over the years and uh have that shown for you guys on youtube as well okay so we're going to be doing we're going to be adding that to what we're doing but anyhow uh i want to thank everybody for tuning in i know it's sunday so like i said kick back eat your snacks and we're gonna 
to hear more about old Lizzie Borden and see how that case going, which doesn't look very good, you know. I don't know about you guys, but it seems to be, you know, um, upon reading this and getting into it, there was a lot, there were a lot of hands involved in the investigation of this thing. And I think that's kind of like, in a lot of ways, what blows it out for me. Because there was just too many fingers in the cookie jar, you know, too many police gra- officers grabbing stuff, too, too many, too, too many marshals, and all this picking up the axes and doing all this, you know, and it just seems like it's just so hard to keep track of the evidence. It was so, you know, in this case, to keep to keep the evidence viable because there's just too many fingers involved, too, too many touchy touchies. Okay, well, I'm going to turn on my tablet and uh, get on with this. Just a word of warning too, when I'm reading it for the new people um i have to have it blown up pretty good size because i'm blind and uh for my kindle and so uh the way the uh photo captions work is sometimes the lettering on the photo captions will blow up just just as big as the regular type in here so i might end up reading a photo caption then have to stop and continue with the book itself so that's just an fyi for you guys get some more water here the california haunts not even the california haunts you did you, did you ever wonder if it's the Mad Kelpie Studios, not the California House Studios? <sighs> Named after my dogs. So again, when we when we left Lizzie, she was in, in, uh, going through a trial, and uh, that was Wednesday night. Because, uh, like I said, the the uh, the guest. Because Dave's confused, he's going to be out at the end of the month. Uh, he, he rebooked, so I ended up reading the book. So let me get in here. Excuse my old and ancient tablet here, but it does do the job. So we can get on with this. So I'll read for about an hour in this book. Sometimes it can be confusing because of the testimony. It'll go back and forth with testimony, so sometimes it gets gets kind of convoluted. So if I have to slow down or stop for a second and gather my thoughts, then that's what I'm doing. Okay. All right. So here we are. And uh, George A. Petty, I hope this is this guy's name, was called after Miss White exited the room. The afternoon was waning, and the gallery stirred restlessly in their seat, sensing the fireworks of the day were over. And down a few snap, crackle, and pops. Mr. Petty stated that he was in a unique position, as he had once owned 92nd... 92 Second Street, the scene of the brutal murders. He had known Andrew Borden for many years. He had passed the house at 10 a.m. that morning and saw Bridget washing the windows. It was shortly after 11 when he heard about the murders at Wade's store, only two buildings away. He had gone to the house and Dr. Bowen at times, and Dr. Bowen at times performing as remaster, pulled back the sheet and showed Mr. Petty Andrew's gruesome wounds. He testified that he saw movement in Mr. Borden's blood, that it was still fresh and flowing. When Dr. Bowen showed him Abby's body upstairs, he placed his hand on her head and stated the hair was dry with matted blood. He told the doctor, this is where it started, meaning Abby had been dead longer. There was a skin, let's see, okay, all right, yeah. There was a skin that had formed over on the pool of blood. Fine. I don't know if that came up. There was a skin that had formed on the pool of blood around her head. Mr. Petty was excused after only a handful of questions without cross-examination. Mr. Augustus P. Gorman was called. He owned the paint shop on the corner of Borden and 2nd Street. His only purpose was to save the, the clock in his store, the one John Cunningham had looked at as he called a marshal that morning to report Andrew's death was not a good clock, and he did not keep, and did not keep very good time at all. He was excused without cross-examination. Adelaide Churchill was recalled. Mr. Moody asked her if she knew what Bedford Court dress was. She replied, no, sir. When pressed to describe Lizzie's dress that morning, she said, I thought it was a cotton dress of some kind. Mr. Robinson asked what kind of dress Bridget had on, and Mrs. Churchill replied, I think a light calico or gingham. It looked as if it might have faded some. I would not call it an indigo blue. Very much lighter, a light summer dress. Mrs. Churchill was excused. Mr. Knowlton stood and addressed the judges. We expected to fill the afternoon. Let's see. We expected to fill the afternoon with the testimony of Mrs. of Miss White, which I understand my friend wants to have a conference about, as we have no other witnesses to call at this time. Miss White's testimony would occupy more than two hours if she was called. Judge Mason then admonished the jury 
before dismissing them not to discuss the case or form any opinions yet based on the evidence that they had heard, as they had only heard a part of the case thus far. At 3.40 p.m., the court was adjourned to Saturday morning, June 10th at 9 a.m. A battle-weary courtroom exited. Chapter 32. The Superior Court Trial, Day 6, Saturday, June 10th, 1893. A special dispatch to the Boston Herald, June 10th, 1893. There was another exciting contest outside the courtroom between the two sets of lawyers. The district attorney, Mr. Knowlton, sent two officers to the Borden home to get the box in which the blade was found and the handle, if it was in it. Miss Borden's sister, Emma, still lives in that house, and her lawyer saw to it that their antagonists were kept out. That's what happened. Miss Lizzie's chief counselor, A.J. Jennings, had better luck. He got the box, but lo, the highly important handle was missing. Who took it can only be guessed at. Had it been found, it would have played Hob with the theory that Miss Borden had burned it. However, the policeman who saw it who saw it proves a good witness for Miss Borden as the handle itself. If the handle had been found in the box, along with the broken head, it would have fared well for Lizzie. The handle, if found without bloodstains, would make the broken tool look just as innocent as was planned. If the handle was missing, it would look suspicious. The new break in the hatchet head's small handle section pointed to recent activity. If the matching handle is not with it, then it was taken away for mysterious reasons. The most popular theory being that it had blood on it that could not be washed off. Then why leave it there at all, at, at all for the officers to find Thursday? Had Lizzie been in a hurry and felt that in its broken state, no one would consider it? Had the repeated trips to the cellar by the police concerned her? Perhaps word got to her through Bridget that Officer Mullowy and Fleet had, had seen it on Thursday. At any rate, between the murder day and Monday morning, when Officer Medley found the hatchet and was told to take it to Marshall Hilliard, the handle had disappeared. The Boston Herald, June 1892. June 10th, New Bedford. The famous box marked Muscate Grapes, Muscate Grapes in blue. The dominant color in this case was on the table before the jury this morning. A new glass of flowers was before the judges. A bunch of helotropes, along with the glasses of carnations, that, that have lasted all the week. It stood between the deep red carnations that typify blood guilt and the, the gentle pink ones that stand for manly sufferings. A change in the carnations was noticed. The guilty ones were dropping and their heads hung down around their vase. The others, emblematic of distressed maidenhood, were rigid and erect. Miss Lizzie Borden had been likened to a barometer because heretofore her spirits at early morning have corresponded with that the day was to bring forth for and against her. It was not so today. She was limp and inert this morning. She seemed depressed. The dress which she wears in court every day is black crepe. It will interest both sexes to hear that Bridget Sullivan, as she visits her friends in the kitchens on the hill, is fond of saying that she scarcely knew Lizzie Borden when she saw her in court the first day. She has grown so fat. Evidently, as the district attorney would say, prison fare is better than the routine of mutton, cold soup, cookies, and green peas she used to get in her cheerless hole in Fall River. The saga of the hatchets and the handles continued, with the testimony of Officer Edson on Saturday morning. Officer Francis L. Edson. Mr. Moody guided Officer Edson through his movements on a Friday morning when he arrived early at the Borden home to collect the two hatchets and two axes from the cellar washroom. Bridget, who had been summoned by John Morris to return to the house after she had slept the evening in the murders, across the street with the Millers, allowed Officer Edson in the back door. Moody. That was Friday morning? Edson. Yes, sir. Moody. What did you take? Edson. Two wood axes, a hand axe, and a small shingle hatchet. Moody. Where did you take them from? Edson. From the cellar. Three of them were in the washroom on the floor. The other one, the hand hatchet, was in the vegetable cellar on the scaffold shelf. I carried them to the police station and put them into Marshall Hilliard's custody. Moody, have you had anything to do with the handleless hatchet? Any possession of that at any time? Edson, I have not. Mr. Moody asked Officer Edson if he was present during the search of the cellar on Monday, August 8th. He said he was, along with Captain Desmond, Connors, Inspection Medley, Inspector Medley, Officer Quigley, and the Mason, Charles H. Bryant. He 
He also said Mr. Jennings and Detective Hanscom were present. Mr. Robinson cross-examined Officer Edson as to the thoroughness of the cellar search. Edson, well, that part, well, that part that I took part in. I searched the vegetable cellar, removing all the barrels, boxes, and shingles underneath the stairs. I also searched the coal pile and in the wood cellar around the furnace. The back of the chimney is in the middle cellar, the wood cellar. Looked in boxes at the base of that chimney that contained the ashes and cinders sifted coals. There was a niche in the chimney and some ashes in there. Robinson, did you or any other of the party, to your knowledge, on that Monday, take away anything from the house? Edson, yes, sir. Officer Midley had a hatchet head in his pocket. Robinson, did you see it? Edson, he showed it to me partly. Robinson, do you know where he got it? Edson, I do not. Robinson, when did he show it to you? Edson, just as he was about to leave, he came to me and pulled it out of his pocket, and it was in a paper, and says, I'm going down street. Robinson, he took it out of his pocket? Edson, yes, sir. It was wrapped in paper. Glanced at it, that is all. It was only, it was only the small hatchet, no handle. He didn't have any handle in his possession. I didn't see a loose handle around there, and I didn't find one. Robinson, did you find anything in that cellar in any way that would help us at all in this case? Edson, outside those hatches and axes? No, sir. Robinson, you carried the two axes and two hatches in a bag down to the police station on the morning of the 5th? Edson, no, sir. Robinson, I beg pardon? I thought you said so. Edson, no, sir. I carried them to the station. Robinson, what did I say? In a bag. Robinson, did you see anybody carry them in a bag? Edson, no, sir. Robinson, how were they carried? Edson, in my hands, openly. Robinson, you didn't see anybody around there with a bag putting anything in? Edson, no, sir. Captain Harrington and Doherty, Captain Harrington and Doherty, Officer McCarty, Reagan J. Linehan, and J. Minahan saw me. Officer Edson stated he also searched the barn, the privy vault, and the woodpile that Monday while the dismantling of the chimney in the cellar was taking place. Edson, we opened the top of the woodpile and opened down a foot or more into the center of it, and we saw through the boards where space had been made and strips laid to allow the air to circulate, and we could see through the pile if anything should be seen there. We were satisfied there was nothing there. This may have been in response to Mr. Jennings and Emma asking the officers to take a closer look at the woodpile. Their interest in it, even after it had been searched three times, seems odd. They checked the well and found only dirt debris. They looked for freshly turned sod in the yard and found only the section where the bloody clothes had been buried. Officer Edson also scaled the fence in the crow's yard, being careful not to tear his clothes on the barbed wire. If Lizzie was watching, as he did this that Monday, four days after the murders, she may have held her breath. The hatchet lay on the barn roof only a few feet away. Once again, her actions remained clothed in secrecy. He did not see it. Next up was Officer, was Officer Benjamin F. Mahoney. He testified that it was he and Mr. Edson that were sent to the Borden house at a quarter, at a quarter of four Friday afternoon to try and retrieve the box where the hatchet head was found. A servant girl answered the door, and they were denied admittance. His only other testimony referred to his taking custody of the blue dress that Lizzie had handed the police on Saturday, August 6th, when Marshal Hilliard requested it during their second search of the day. Officer Mahoney had taken the dress from the custody of Professor Wood on May 30, 1893, under the instruction of the DA and the Marshal. He returned it to Professor Wood on June 2, 1893. He kept it in his possession during that time. Officer William Medley. Officer William Mendley took the stand with Lizzie Borden's peculiar and singular gaze upon him. This was the officer who had interviewed her the morning of the murders, and then runs to the barn lock to test her story of being up there for 20 to 30 minutes of that stifling hot day. There he found no prints in the thick layer of hay dust. After placing his hand in the dust and walking about in it, he could clearly see his own prints. Lizzie's defense had done its best to eradicate his testimony by bringing in several witnesses to claim they had been up in the lock before Medley, obviously leaving copious tracks in the dust. One by one, their testimony was demolished by Attorney Knowlton, who, with renewed, with renewed vigor, took the reins from his co-counsel, Mr. Rudy. Officer Medley stated, It was a very hot day, and went on to say that the two windows and the hay door in the loft were both closed when he went up. 
Officer Midley testified that he participated in the search of the cellar on Monday, August 8th, while the mason was at work on the chimney. He answered Mr. Moody as to his actions at that time. Medley, I examined all I could in the wash cellar. Then I helped to put out some barrels and things that, that were in a corner of the wash cellar in, a, in another little cellar. And after putting part of those back in place, I think there was a large pile of wood in that particular corner of the cellar. And in there, while searching, I found a small hatchet head. It was in a box, perhaps 15 or 16 inches long and 4 or 5 inches deep. It was on a block. I am not sure whether it was a chopping block or a block made from a box, but it was some piece that rested above the level of the cellar floor, perhaps about a foot and a half high. And this box was on top of that. It was filled with old rubbish, irons of different kinds, and one or two tools. I have forgotten just what they were, and some nails, I think. Moody, was there any other officer in the same cellar when you found the head of the hatchet? Medley, no, sir. Moody. Where was Captain Desmond? Medley, in the passageway in the cellar, two or three feet from me. Moody, did you take it from the box? Medley, I did. I showed it to Captain Desmond right away. After some instructions from Captain Desmond, I put it in a paper and wrapped it up and showed it. I think, I think to some of the other officers. Maybe Edson and carried it away immediately to the city marshal's office. Moody, did you find any handle or anything having the appearance of a handle to this hatchet? except the piece that was in the eye, the eye of the hatchet? Medley, no, sir. Moody, now, sir, I wish you would describe without any further question the appearance of that hatchet as you found it. Medley, it was all covered with dust as I took it from the box. A coarse dust. It was a coarse dust. It seemed to me like the dust of ashes. It was on the whole of it, both sides. I noticed there was a new break. I did not notice that there were ashes or dust on the new break. Parentheses. The box, when Officer Medley saw it Monday morning, was now sitting down lower on a ledge, and maybe where Fleet and Molly left it, after looking at it over the Thursday before, or perhaps someone else took it down to remove the handle and take it away. In parentheses. Governor Robinson cross-examined Officer Medley and walked him through his actions upon finding the hatchet head. The officer stated that he had shown it to Captain Desmond, and they both walked with it to the water closet where some papers were kept for sanitary reasons. He claimed he wrapped it in a piece of brown paper and placed it in the side pocket of his sack coat jacket and carried it away to the police station. Governor Robinson then had Officer Midley take the actual head and wrap it in a piece of newspaper to demonstrate how he wrapped it that day. Midley did so, handing it back to the council, saying, I am not very tidy at such things. That is, as, as near as I can think, is about how I did it. Midley, parentheses, Midley hands Robinson a newly wrapped package. In parentheses, Officer Medley stated he was patrol. He was a patrolman at the time of the murder and was promoted to inspector in December. He was asked how he left the barn door after going up to look at the hay dust, and he stated he closed it and left it as, excuse me, and left it as he had found it, <clears throat> with the hasp on and a piece of iron through it. It hung from a chain or rope or something just to keep the hasp on the staple. Parentheses, the other people who claimed to have gone into the barn before Medley said the barn door was open. He was the only one to find it locked with a hasp and staple, just as it was always kept open when none of the wardens were inside, in parentheses. Captain Dennis Desmond Jr. was up next. Sporting a full mustache, the custom of the day, he took the stand and stated upon questioning that he too had been promoted since August 4th from acting captain to captain. Mr. Moody, after establishing that Captain Desmond had been part of the searches of the Borden home, in particular, the dress closet asked, Moody, did you see any dress that was soiled with paint or with spots of any kind? Desmond, no, sir. Moody, upon the Monday following, did you take part in any search? Desmond, I did, yes, sir. I was in command of the squad that went there to, to search. Moody, among others, was Officer Medley there? Desmond, he was. Moody, I will call your attention to anything that Mr. Moody showed you during the progress of the search. In the cellar? Desmond, a small hatchet. He called, me from, he called me from what I was doing to a room in the cellar, just west of the kitchen cellar. It had been broken, and the wooden part had been left, the piece of iron and wood in the head. I looked it over, examined it quite closely. We took it to the north side of the building, directly opposite to where he said he found it. It was all dirty, that is. It was covered with dust, which was not a fine, of a fine nature. 
that is, it was too coarse to be called a fine. A fine. What what I mean is, it wasn't any sediment that might have collected on it from standing there any length of time. The dust that we found in general throughout the cellar was nothing at all, such as what what was on the hatchet. This was much coarser in nature. He then testified that Officer Medley carried the hatchet hid away, wrapped in a newspaper. Mr. Robinson, on cross-examination, asked Desmond if he was sure there was no hatchet handled in the box when Officer Medley showed him where it was found. There was nothing but iron in the box, an old bolt, some nails, a chisel, no handle. Parentheses, as a side note, it would seem the things Lizzie claimed she needed from the barn, nails and iron, are right there in a box in the cellar. Close parentheses. The next section of testimony brought some much-needed comic relief to the proceedings. Captain Desmond, while describing the coarseness of the ashes on the hatchet blade, let it slip that he wrapped the head up in a newspaper and handed it to Medley. Officer Medley testified only minutes before that he had wrapped the blade in brown paper and took it away. Robinson, are you certain about taking it up? Desmond, yes, sir. I got the paper from the water closet there to do it up with. Robinson, well, won't you wrap it up in about... Well, okay, well, won't you wrap it up in about as large a piece of paper? Desmond, I shall have to get a full-size newspaper to do it. Much larger than that, sir. Referring to a piece of paper handed to witness by counsel. Robinson, you got a piece out of the water closet? Yes, sir. Robinson, brown paper? Desmond, no, sir. Regular newspaper, but a larger paper than that. Robinson, you wrapped it in newspaper? The governor said, prolonging the comedy to the gallery's amusement. Yes, sir, a very large newspaper. Robinson, larger than that, exhibiting a Boston Globe. Yes. Robinson, well, take that and give, give us the way you wrapped it up. Desmond, witness does so. I wrapped it up in such a form as that and passed it to him. The head is wrapped up in a huge mass. Robinson, made, it, made as big a bundle as that, did it? Desmond, sensing the sarcasm and smiles at the courtroom. No, sir, not as large as that. The Boston Globe reported on the incident. Today, the hatchet laid out more policemen. Mr. Robinson actually made the two policemen show the jury how each one wrapped it up. The two officers went through the performance, each one swearing positively to his details. One made a brown bundle the size of a five-cent cut pie, and the other made a great newspaper bundle, big enough to conceal a pair of longshoremen's shoes. Why did two officers both claim they wrapped the, hat did they wrap the hatchet? Had it been wrapped twice, with perhaps one of them unwrapping it to show it, some other to, to show it to some other officer before Medley left to take it to Hilliard. Detective George F. Seaver was the last witness to go before the court that Saturday. He was a member of the State District Police Force living in Taunton, Massachusetts. He testified that Assistant Marshal Fleet showed him to handle his hatchet on Saturday during the second search done after the funeral. He said he took it out of the box, looked it over, and put it back. He described the dust on the hatchet head as coarse, unlike the other dust around it. He said the break on the handle portion looked like fresh, bright break, as though it had not been done very long. Mr. Moody then led him to the testimony about the dresses in the clothes press on the second floor. Seaver, I first went into the closet, and the closet blinds were shut, that is, the outside blinds. I opened the blinds, there were cloths around the window, hoisted the window, and took the cloth down and opened the blinds, and then I went to the hooks. Captain Fleet was there with me. He had gone in two or three minutes before me. I commenced on the hooks and took each dress, with the exception of two or three in the corner, and passed them to Captain Fleet, he being near the windows, and he explained them as well as, and he examined them as well as myself, he more thoroughly than myself. And I took each garment then <clears throat> and hung it back as I found them, all with exception of two or three, which were heavier silk dresses in the corner. I didn't pass those down. I just looked at them and let them remain as they were. Moody, those were silk dresses? Seaver, those were silk dresses, I'm very sure. Heavy dresses. And they hung there, and I didn't disturb them. Moody, did you discover anything upon any of those dresses? Seaver, I did not. Moody, did you see a light blue dress, diamond spots upon it, and paint around the bottom of the dress on, the, on its front? Seaver, I did not. Detective Seaver is then asked to go into great detail about the myriad blood spots found on the in the two locations where the bodies lay that day. While 86 spots of blood sprayed across the, the wallpaper above Andrew's head was mentioned, the account of Abby's room was more graphic. Seaver, 
excuse me for the allergies, on the faceboard of the bed and was besmeared with blood. The space, so many spots were found, I did not attempt to count them. Very many of them. We found the lower board of the dressing case besmeared with blood spots, very thick, and also some matted hair stuck on the blood. That was very near the floor. On the glass of the dressing case, there was 15 blood spots. The heavier parts of each spot were at the bottom, nine inches from the window casing, and two and one half feet from the floor was a spot of blood. There were two spots upon the dressing case in the window. Mr. Robinson stood up for the cross-examination. Robinson, when you looked down the box that day, down in the cellar, you found this or saw this hatchet head, did you? Seaver, yes, sir. Robinson, saw it in the box? Seaver, in the box. No, sir. At that time, at the time I first saw it, Mr. Fleet took it out of the box. I saw him take it out of the box, and I looked at it. Robinson, what day was this, Mr. Seaver? Seaver, this was Saturday afternoon, right after we got through with the search upstairs. After we left the closet, we went directly downstairs, or very soon after, me and Mr. Fleet. Parentheses. This is the first we hear that Mr. Fleet looks at the handle of his hatchet again, other than that on that day, other than on the day of the murders. He does not testify to looking at it on Saturday, let alone showing it to Detective Seaver. Yet both men still leave it behind, even though both find the coarse ashes coating the thing suspicious, and that it appears to have been freshly broken. End of parentheses. Governor Robinson now goes for the jugular. With rapid-fire questioning, he asks about Mr. Fleet and Detective Seaver's search in the dress closet. He hammers the detective as to the colors of the dresses, how many, if there were boxes and trunks, and on and on. Over and over, the detective admits he doesn't know what color the dresses were, what material, how many. Was there a pink one? Was there a blue one? Any black ones? How about the green one there? Silk, alpaca, wool? Seaver answers each with an I don't know. He is certain none of them had paint stains or blood. Robinson, were you there at the clothes room when the city marshal made a request for the production of the dress Miss Lizzie had on Thursday morning? Seaver, I was downstairs at the time, not at the clothes room. It was brought to Mr. Hilliard by some person, I think. Robinson, right in your presence? Seaver, yes, sir. Robinson, you heard the request made, and it was brought immediately, wasn't it? Seaver, I think it was, yes. Robinson, don't you know if it was brought right out at the clothes room? Wasn't it right after the search? Didn't that blue dress hang right up on the second hook from, from the window? Seaver, I wouldn't swear. I don't remember it. Robinson, well, were you present when Dr. Dolan examined it? Seaver, no, sir. I don't know about his examining it. I don't re recollect it, excepting at the station. Chapter 34, Superior Court Trial, Days 7 to 15, Doctors and Blood Splatter. The Superior Court Trial rumbled on, a trainload of evidence with one final destination, the, convi the conviction or acquittal of Lizzie, Bor Lizzie Andrew Borden. During the time of the trial, <clears throat> the serial killer, during, sorry about that time, during the time of the trial, a serial killer was hacking up tourists who were staying at his torture chamber in a hotel in Chicago while they visited the World's Fair. H.H. H. Holmes confessed to 27 murders at his World's Fair hotel only three miles from Jackson Park, where millions were attending the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. It was estimated that the actual body count was close to 200. He was captured in November of 1894 and found guilty of four counts of murder in the first degree and six counts of attempted murder, a mild conviction based on his actual deeds. Yet it was Lizzie Borden, a Sunday school teacher from Fall River, who was capturing the lion's share of headlines in 1893. Will Lizzie be heard? Monday, June 12th at 9 a.m., the court opened its doors to a select few. The jury was not in attendance, nor was the gallery. The attorneys for both sides argued the admissibility of Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony being read before the jury. The arguments consumed the morning, but in the end, the judges ruled it inadmissible due to the nature in which Lizzie was treated, and most importantly, she was denied legal counsel or advised of her rights after being told she was a, murder su a suspect in a murder investigation. That Miss White, the stenographer from the inquest, would not be reading Lizzie's confusing and contradictory testimony was a godsend to the defense. Lizzie put her head down on the railing of the dock and wept with relief. The doctors weigh in. The courtroom was about to be thrown to a Jekyll and Hyde laboratory when the humid days of June 12th and 13th arrived on the calendar. 
with the exception of Officer Joseph Hyde, the policeman who watched Lizzie's nocturnal movements in the cellar that night of the murders. The rest of the docket was made up of professors and doctors. As the jury, as the jury gallery and newspapermen arrived inside the small courtroom shortly after lunch on Monday, June 12th, they were surprised to see the transformation of the stuffy surroundings. The blood-speckled bedspread from the guest room was hung over the jurors' railing, the bloody pillow sham was on display, and other articles that were smeared with blood. It was obvious the gloves were off, and the meat of the case was about to hit the sensation-seeking public full blast. Much of these learned men's testimonies have been provided earlier in the book. For the sake of brevity, their latest findings are offered in the order of their appearance. Dr. Albert C. Diedrich. Dr. Diedrich's time on the sale was brief. <clears throat> he testified to arriving at the Borden home sometime after two in the afternoon. He found Mrs. Borden's blood, blood ropey and oh, okay. He found <laughs> took me a second. He found Mrs. Borden's blood ropey and, and, and coagulated, while Mr. Borden's blood was more cozy. He estimated the time between the two deaths was several hours. Dr. William A. Dolan, one. Lizzie told him the sick note Abby received that morning was probably burned in the stove. 2. The sofa where Andrew lay was up against the jam of the dining room door, not centered on the wall. 3. The sofa is now at the courthouse. 4. Andrew's hand was still warm, and his blood was bright red and still oozing at noon when Dr. Dolan arrived. 5. Dr. Dolan pulled the Prince Albert coat up a little to get to the inside pocket. 6. Under Andrew's head, in order was a doubled-up afghan, the Prince Albert coat, and then a sofa cushion with a little white tidy on it. 7. He had Mr. Kiernan, a civil engineer, take measurements of the area where Abby Borden lay between the bed and dressing case. 8. He stated Abby's hands were around her head. Her head was not resting on them, nearer the wall than her head. They were an inch or two apart. Dr. Bowen stated her arms were beneath her bosom. 9. Dr. Dolan took away the bloody handkerchief after he had it, and other things, dug up after they had been buried behind the Borden's barn and had it with him at the courthouse in a satchel in Mr. Moody's office. He stated the handkerchief was found near Abby's head. 10. Dr. Dolan participated in the autopsies at the house at 3 in the afternoon of the murders. He removed their stomachs, tied them off at both ends, and put them into separate clean jars, which he sealed. 11. On August 11th, a more thorough autopsy was performed at Oak Grove Cemetery. Joining him was Dr. Francis Draper of Boston. Dr. Draper made casts of both skulls at that time. They examined the intestines of both bodies, measured and inspected each wound on the skulls. The wounds varied from 1 to 5 inches in length. 12. Dr. Draper decapitated both bodies and prepared the skulls by removing flesh and cartilage without interfering with the integrity of the bone. 13. He testified he believed Mrs. Borden died from one and one and a half, two hours, or from one hour to one and a half hours before Mr. Borden. 14. He told Mr. Adams that the bodies were interred on August 11th after the heads had been removed. The family, the daughters, Emma and Lizzie, were not notified that the internment had been performed with the headless bodies. The court adjourned at 5 p.m. until Tuesday, June 13th at 9 a.m. Tuesday, June 13, 1893. Dr. Dolan was recalled and interrogated for the defense by Mr. Adams, during which a lengthy discourse took place in which each wound was reviewed, including whether it had penetrated the brain cavity. Many women in the courtroom were feeling the heat of the day and nausea associated with the graphic descriptions that seemed to go on and on. The room was overbearingly hot and fans fluttered faster with each gory detail. Finally, the testimony turned to the hatchet without a handle, and everyone breathed a little easier, but not for long. Adams, have you examined the hatchet? Dolan, I have. Adams, do you consider it a good edge, a good sharp cutting edge? Dolan, I do. It is sharp. As to the position of the murderer, from the appearance of things, I replaced the assailant of Mr. Borden at the head of the lounge, between the parlor door and the head of the lounge, and the blows were swung from left to right. Adams, if the assailant, using the instrument you have described, or a similar one, had cut the artery which you have described, would it not have been natural that the assailant would have been covered in blood, or would have been splattered, or sprinkled with blood? Dolan, not necessarily. Adams, how do you explain that they would not have been? Dolan, 
because the blood would not spurt in that direction. It would not necessarily spurt in that direction of the assailant. Mr. Adams now brings out the cast, made of Andrew's skull, and a nervous twitter goes through the gallery. Adams, no more than the ordinary strength of a person was required to administer these blows? Dolan, moderate force was used. No more than moderate force to give those blows was used. So far, Mr. Adams' questions were doing more for the prosecution than for Lizzie's cause. The jury had heard the assailant would not necessarily be spotted with blood, and only moderate strength was necessary to inflict a myriad of wounds. Adams, now. Taking the position of Mrs. Borden, the pillow shams, the bedspread, the spots on the pillow shams, mirror and baseboard, where, in your opinion, did the assailant stand when inflicting these injuries? Dolan, astride the body. Adams, and over it? Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, how did the assailant face? Dolan, the east wall. At this moment, there was a stir in the jury box. All eyes turned to see Juror Hodges in an ear faint. The grisly testimony, white skull cast, and the heat had overwhelmed him. The jury was dismissed for a short recess, and he was taken out to their small room. The rest of the courtroom may have appreciated the reprieve from the morbid testimony. Many stared at Lizzie's profile to gauge her reaction to the accounts of the murders in such graphic detail. After five minutes, the jurors proceeded once again. Juror Hodges returned holding a small cup of water. Dr. Dolan was asked about blood spots pertaining to the garments and shoes Lizzie had handed over as being worn the morning of the murders. He said there was a smooch near the shirt pocket. That was not blood. Blood found on the soles of the shoes was found to have been put there during the tanning process of the leather. And the white petticoat had just had the one pinhead sized spot on the outside of the skirt near the bottom. Other than the statements regarding the timing of the two deaths, Dr. Dolan had done nothing to damage the business case. The experts arrived. The prosecution's sole purpose for introducing the next three experts was to elicit testimony that would underscore their proof of guilt. <clears throat> Trifecta. 1. Lizzie was physically capable of inflicting the wounds. 2. The murders of the victims were committed while she was at home and in Abby's case, alone in the house with her stepmother. And 3. There was an appropriate weapon available to her in the house to commit the crimes. First up, Professor Wood. 1. Professor Wood was a chemist and physician who for 22 years had been the professor of chemistry at Harvard Medical School and had testified in a large number of capital cases. 2. He received a box containing four jars on August 5, 1892 from the Railroad Express, one jar labeled Milk of August 1992, one labeled Milk of August 4, 1892, one labeled Stomach of Andrew J. Borden, and one labeled Stomach of Mrs. Andrew J. Borden. They were examined. 3. After testimony concerning the rate of digestion, the two stomachs' contents, and other descriptive internal details, the professor said he estimated Abby died one and one-half hours before her husband. 4. He stated he received, on August 10th, two axes and two hatchets, a blue dress, skirt, and waist, a white, a white skirt, a piece of, sitting, of the sitting room carpet, a piece of the bedroom carpet, a piece of false, a piece of false hair, a braid or switch, a hair from Mrs. Borden's head, a hair from Mr. Borden's head, and a hair taken from the head of a hatchet. He found no blood on the weapons. The hair was from an animal, probably a cow. 5. The spot of blood on the white underskirt was human blood. On the outside of the skirt, not, not the inside. This was significant, as Mr. Robinson's defense explanation for the blood was that it was menstrual blood, which would more likely be found on the inside of the skirt, not the outside. The prosecution did not press the matter, mostly because the subject was too indelicate in that era. 6. Professor Wood stated, on August 30th, I received the hatchet head and handled this hatchet, and it has been in my possession ever since. My examination revealed that both sides of the hatchet head were uniformly rusted, that there were several reddish spots upon the head, although I could not determine that these were bloodstains. I soaked the hatchet for several days in a solution which accounts for the darkening of the fractured part of the wood handle. When I received it, there was white dirt like ashes, clearly visible, with a substance resembling ashes, and was and continues to be at this time strongly adherent to both sides of the blade. It resisted rubbing. The hatchet, in my opinion, had been wet when placed in or in contact with the white material, and this white material had permeated the many crevices 
of the blade's surface and had stuck very tightly. 7. Professor Wood said if the hatchet had been used as a murder weapon, rubbed with ashes and then broken, it would account for no blood or ash being found on the fresh break. When asked if the head could have merely fallen into the ashes and looked, and looked as it did, he said no. The ashes had been forcibly rubbed onto it, which accounted for them being still lodged in the blade's crevices. 8. He described prussic acid as one of the most deadly poisons we know. Any solution which contains one grain of prussic acid is a fatal dose. 9. Mr. Adams got the professor to admit he could not tell how recently the hatchet had been broken. 10. Mr. Adams asked about the blood spatter and the assailant might have the blood spatter the assailant may have received. Quotes, the assailant standing behind Andrew Borden would almost certainly receive spatters of blood on the upper part of his body. If the assailant stood astride Mrs. Borden, he would receive spatters on the lower part of his body. The doctor, however, could not form an opinion as to the number of spatters of blood, if any, which the assailant would receive. Dr. Frank W. Draper, M.D., was next. We preference his testimony with a letter he wrote to attorney Hosea Knowlton a few days before the trial began. F. W. Draper, M.D., May 31, 1893, 104 Marble Street, Boston. My dear sir, Dr. Cheever, or Dr. Cheever and I have had a conference today with the board and photographs and skulls before us. We are in entire accord, and he will testify. 1. That the cause and matter of the deaths were the same in both cases, namely, fracture of the skull and injury of the brain by blows to the head. 2. That the weapon was an edged tool of some weight, like a hatchet. 3. That the length of the edge of the weapon was about 3.5 inches. 4. That Mrs. Borden was killed by blows inflicted from behind the assailant standing, standing astride the body. 5. That Mr. Borden was killed by blows given by the assailant standing at the head of the sofa just within the door. 6. That the assailant was right-handed and used his right hand, or, if using both hands, that the left hand was foremost or in front of the right hand on the handle. 7. That Mrs. Borden died first, and the supposition of an hour's interval is not inconsistent with the facts relating to the stage of digestion, the body temperature, and the condition of the blood in the two cases. 8. That the deaths were instantaneous. 9. That a woman would have sufficient physical strength to inflict the blows, assuming that she was of normal adult vigor. I write especially to inform you of two important discoveries which I made upon a careful examination of the two skulls. On Mr. Borden's skull, I found that the blow just in front of the ear left its mark on the base of the skull within the cavity that its depth was 1 7 16th inches, and that it cut directly through the internal cardioid artery. This wound was necessarily and immediately fatal from hemorrhage. The other discovery is still more important. On one of the cuts in Mrs. Borden's skull, near the right ear, there was a small deposit of gilt metal which, with which the hatchets are ornamented when they, have the, when they leave the factory. This deposit, Dr. Cheever confirmed the observation, means that the hatchet used in killing Mrs. Borden was a new hatchet, not long out of the store. Perhaps this is not new information, either to you or Dr. Dolan. It was new to me and seemed important enough to justify immediate conveyance to you. The shining deposit can be seen with the naked eye. It is plainly visible with the use of a lens when once its situation is indicated. I see by the morning papers that killing people with hatches is a Bristol County habit. I am sorry that this latest homicide comes just now when you and Dr. Dolan are so much occupied with other matters. Matters. Very truly yours, F.W. Draper. Attorney Knowlton received this letter on May 31, 1893. Dr. Draper testified in Superior Court trial only 13 days later. Yet is never asked, nor does he testify to finding the gold gilt material in Abby's skull. Why? Because the handleless hatchet, although sharp, was not new. There was no gold embossed emblem upon it, no gilt along its edge. It had been chiseled down often over the years. At this late stage, Knowlton could not switch gears again, when they had already eaten crow by announcing during the preliminary hearing that the clawhead hatchet was the murder weapon, only to have it proven its blade was an inch and a half too wide for Andrew's cuts. They switched gears for the Superior Court trial, and had been waving the broken hatchet as their new star. If they switched again to a new fresh out-of-the-store hatchet that they didn't even have, they would have been a laughing stock, and the jury would have had a, 
had a more than reasonable doubt about the prosecution even having a case. Therefore, Dr. Draper's finding of gold residue in Abby's cut was not mentioned. Two days after Dr. Draper testified on the stand, a newspaper article shook Fall River and rattled both Mr. Jennings and Mr. Dalton. Headline. Another hatchet found. Fall River, June 15th. Last night, a boy named Potter, son of C.C. Potter, clerk in the Fall River Waterworks office, while looking for a ball, found a hatchet on top of John Crow's barn, which is located just in the rear of the Borden property. Mr. Potter this morning reported his find to the police and also sought an interview with the counsel for the defense, but was unable to find Mr. Jennings. He still has the hatchet in his possession and describes it as an ordinary implement with a hammerhead. The hatchet was weather-beaten and the blade covered with rust. Some of the particles of rust being removed, a slight coloring of guilt was disclosed, which would either indicate that the hatchet was at one time used as an ornament or was quite new when lost or discarded. Another article by the Daily News Bulletin stated, The hatchet is an ordinary shingle hatchet with a blade 3 3, three eighth inches in length. It has the appearance of having been comparatively new or little used. The handle, which is 13 and a half inches long, looked weather-worn as if it had been long exposed to air, sun, and storm. If the murder of Andrew J. Borden and his wife escaped from the Borden premises by the rear, and it was a very easy way for him to escape, he could easily have thrown the hatchet to the place where it was found. So far as is known, no man has been on the roof within two years. Mr. Crow knows at least Mr. Crow knows of none, all telegraph, telephone, electric light wiremen, roofers, and several photographers agree on this. The police did not visit it in their thorough search. The police are examining it this morning. They thought they could tell whether there, there had been blood on it or not. They confirmed that they are baffled. But one of them, who has been an important witness in the Borden case, admits that with the new find and the exclusion of the Bent story, Lizzie, which is Lizzie biting poison, Everything has gone up for the government so far, as possible conviction of Lizzie Borden is concerned. The defense has opened his case. Now look for important and vital contradictions of government testimony. The story of the hatchet being found and the evidence of finding gold guilt in Abby's skull were never heard within the courtroom. Shortly after the Crow's Barn hatchet, dis shortly after the Crow's Barn hatchet disappeared from the police station, never to surface again. Why wouldn't Mr. Jennings want to bring in this valuable last, lasting? Blasting reprieve, because it was a double-edged sword. Yes, as the papers hinted, it could have been tossed there by an escaping murderer. But, as the prosecution could point out, it could just as easily have been tossed or thrown there by Lizzie Borden, a woman seen coming from the backyard that morning by a Russian ice cream peddler. And Mr. Knowlton? As already stated, it would have sunk his credibility and the case, you know, and the case he built. The hoodoo hatchet had a brother. It is interesting that both murder weapons, the crow's barn hatchet and the handleless hatchet, are both shingling hatchets with a three and a half to three and three eighths inch blade. This is a smaller lighter hatchet, one a woman would have one a woman would gravitate towards. It is very possible Mr. Jennings and his co-counsels never heard about Dr. Draper's finding of the guilt material. He was a prosecution's man, and discovery had already been submitted. Dr. Frank Draper M.D. had practiced medicine in Boston for 24 years. He was a graduate of Harvard Medical School and had been the medical examiner for Suffolk County, Massachusetts. One, he received a plaster cast of the skulls of the Bordens and while at the cemetery had drawn pencil marks among the skulls, indicating the exact location and length of each of the many wounds. He had found the bodies at that time very much decomposed. He could not testify as to the sequence of the blows and stated the numbers they were given were, very, were not very indicative of the order in which they were received. There had been 11 blows to Mrs. Borden's head. 2. He testified the length of the blade that killed Andrew Borden was 3.5 inches. 3. Using the plaster cast of Abby's skull, he went over her various wounds, 18 in all. The first wound, which was a flap over the left ear, had been delivered from the front to the back and was a long cut. There were, two, there were two wounds on the top of the head and the back of the crown. Both of them had penetrated the skull and entered the brain. The next wound had entered the ear. It was deep enough to penetrate the skull. 
there had been a group of twelve wounds above the right ear, distributing in a fan shape, varying in depth. These wounds altogether resulted in a complete smashing of the skull. The final wound was the one on the body, near the neck, where the neck meets the shoulders. It had been delivered right to, right to, right to left as the assailant stood over the body. At this time, there was a pause in the testimony. Lizzie Borden was, mercifully, allowed to leave for the next portion of Dr. Draper's testimony. She was seated in a small room next to the courtroom. Mr. Mooney picked up a large package from the floor near the prosecution table and placed it on his table. He looked over some papers, then without preamble, took from the package the fleshless skull of Andrew Borden. The room gasped. It was one thing to see a plaster cast, to see the discolored head of the victim was another. The gruesome relic shocked the spectators, jurors, and court alike. Dr. Draper accepted the skull with the detachment of a seasoned medical examiner. He produced from his pocket a piece of tin plate which he said measured exactly three and a half inches in length. Using the piece of tin plate, he then inserted it into each of the many wounds on the crushed skull, showing how each blow had been administered. The three and a half tin plate, three and a half inch tin plate fit easily into each wound. Not only did it fit because exactly, Dr. Draper said, no other blade with would facilitate those same cuts. To test the theory, Mr. Adams handed him a new hatchet, unrelated to the case with a smaller blade width. It was not ground the same way the hatchet, this hatchet had been, and it did not fit the cuts of the skull. In other words, only that broken hatchet head could have made those wounds. It was like comparing a bite mark where the mower had a worn edge. It was an imprint, both of its singular usage. Without the grinding, the hatchet head had 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 it was too thick. It was an it was it was an extraordinary moment. Mr. Adams for the defense took one more shot at the doctor. He went into the gruesome detail he went into gruesome detail about the beheading and boiling of the heads, hoping to gain the sympathy and, and repulsion of the jury. He then asked Dr. Draper to take a piece of chalk and mark on Mr. Adams' jacket back exactly where the blow to Abby's neck area had been. Dr. Draper stepped up behind the attorney and taking a piece of chalk drew a line onto a suit jacket indicating the location of the horizontal blow to Abby's back between her shoulder blades. As he was drawing the line, Mr. Adams, in his usual caustic manner, quipped, I trust that I shall not be numbered and marked as, the, as an exhibit. The courtroom gallery erupted in laughter, including the jury. After a long day of graphic and gory detail, it was, it was some much-needed comic relief. Mr. Adams wrapped up his questioning of the doctor by asking if the fake hair braid and Abby's thick hair would alter the strength needed in cutting through it with the blows. Dr. Draper said it would not, and the blows were within the physical capability of a woman. Many of the females seated about the courtroom that day may have marveled at the information they were capable of inflicting such damage, and no doubt, more than one glass at Lizzie's arms. Dr. David W. Cheever Dr. Cheever was a Boston physician and the professor of surgery and anatomy at Harvard Medical School. On May 31st, 1893, for the first time, he viewed the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. He concluded that the weapon used had a blade of three and a half inches and no longer. He stated the handleless hatchet fit perfectly. Two, he testified the scalp wound inflicted on Abby occurred when she was face to face with her assailant. Three, all the wounds he saw, he testified, could have been inflicted by a woman. 4. With regard to the spattering of blood, I can say with certainty that no one can tell the direction of the blood spattering or its radius. 5. Dr. Cheever conceded the assailant would in all likelihood have blood on his shoes in the matter of Abby's murder. The medical evidence was now all in. The prosecution's three-legged stool of probable guilt had withstood the grudging testimony. Lizzie had the strength to carry out the murders. She may not have been spattered in blood, and the murder weapon, the handleless hatchet, came from her own cellar. The court adjourned at 5 p.m. until the next morning, June 14, 1893, at 9 a.m. It would be the ninth day of the trial. Wednesday, June 14, 1893. The ninth day of the trial opened with the usual heat and humidity of New Bedford in the summer months. Ladies fluttered their fans, men flapped their lapels in hopes of a breeze. The cow's unhappiness was clearly heard through the open windows. The climate in the courtroom mirrored the oppressive heat outside. 
The case was looking bleak for the defendant. In particular, the testimony from three of the East Coast's most prominent medical men, concluding Abby had been dead an hour and a half before Andrew. It put her death at the time Lizzie was alone in the house, with a servant outside washing windows, with plenty of hatchets and axes in the cellar. She also had ample time to clean up an entire hour before Bridget came inside to clean. <clears throat> Excuse me. Marshal Rufus B. Hilliard was called by the prosecution. He had been in the, he had been the city marshal of Fall River for 14 years. A brawl was of a man. He was weary of the case and ready to move on to other matters. Hilliard testified to being at the Borden house to supervise and help in the various searches, including the barn and grounds. He started, he stated, <clears throat> he asked Mr. Jennings on the day of the funeral for the dress Lizzie had worn the day of the murders. Mr. Jennings had gone out of his sight for a few minutes and returned with a blue dress waist, skirt, and white underskirt and handed them to the marshal. Hilliard turned them over to Dr. Dolan. On the evening of the funeral, August 6th, Hilliard and Mira Coughlin had gone to the boarding house to speak with the residents there. Quote, I sent for officers to clear the street, and then the mayor and I saw Lizzie and Emma and Mr. Morris in the parlor. Mayor Coughlin asked that the members of the family remain in the house for a few days, and he offered them police protection and suggested that they send persons for the mail rather than go to the post office for it. End quotes. Lizzie then said, What? Is there any suspect in this house? The mayor said, well, perhaps Mr. Morris can answer that question, as the mom had accosted him the night before. Then Lizzie said, I want to know the truth, and she repeated that twice. With that, Miss Emma spoke up and said, we have tried to keep it from her as long as we could. Then Lizzie said, I'm ready to go at any time. The cross-examination of Marshal Hilliard was lengthy, with Mr. Adams trying to ascertain if the marshal told Miss Emma at the end of the search for Saturday evening that they had done a complete and thorough search and with the exception of the mason looking at the chimneys <clears throat> Monday morning, they were through. Hilliard danced around it for a while and admitted that was essentially what was communicated. He also said the warrant for Lizzie's arrest was not offered Saturday night. It had been drawn up Monday, August 8th. This played into Mr. Jennings' point that the time of Lizzie's inquest testimony, there was a warrant ready for her if she was denied counsel or a warning of her rights. Mayor John W. Coughlin was next. He stated he was a physician surgeon and mayor of Fall River. He basically backed up Marshal Hilliard's telling of the conversation in Borden's parlor on Saturday evening, August 6th. Mrs. Hannah H. Gifford took the stand and testified to being Lizzie's dressmaker for seven or eight years. She retold Lizzie telling her that Mrs. Borden was a, was a mean good for nothing. Miss Anna H. Borden, Lizzie's traveling companion for the Grand Tour of Europe, stood at the railing looking uncomfortable. She once again distanced herself from being a close relative of Lizzie's. While the witness was there to testify to Lizzie's tales of an unhappy home and her dread of returning there after the European trip in 1890, the judge ruled it inadmissible due to the grounds. The statements were too ambiguous in character and too remote in point of view and time. The not-so-close relative stood down. The next four witnesses, Lucy Collett, Lucy Collett, Thomas Bowles, Patrick McGowan, and Aruba Kirby were all brought on as witnesses to anyone being seen in the Borden Yard that Thursday morning. Patrick was the parrot thief. Lucy sat on Dr. Shignan's patio during, hang on a second, during the murder timeline. Thomas Bowles was washing Mrs. Churchill's carriage next door, and Aruba Kirby was in her sink room next door to Dr. Shignan looking out of his driveway, just northeast of the Borden's home. None of them saw anyone suspicious. All right, guys, we're going to stop there and uh, continue this next Sunday. Let me shut this down. I want to thank you all for coming. And uh, a lot of court testimony to go through. Funny about the axe, right? How they finally find the right axe and they're not going to submit it for evidence. It's kind of crazy. <clears throat> Anyhow, I want to thank you all for coming. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We like to be equal opportunity here at California House Radio. Also, if you like the show and you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, please hit that follow button. And again, if you're watching from YouTube, please see the little guy down there, the little ghost down there with the Sherlock Holmes hat on the magnifying glass. That's our mascot, and that'll set you up for subscribing to our videos. If you go take a look at our YouTube page, You'll see that we've got 350 videos over there at varying topics. 
again, I want to thank you all for coming today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a good rest of the weekend. Tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., our usual time, Michael W. Hall is going to be with us. He is a UFO experiencer with a very, very, very unique story to tell. So he's going to be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Again, thank you all for coming, and I will see you. Let me get on my page here. i got to click my little buttons. There we go. And I will see you all tomorrow. Have a good night.